Bastard Eye Illusions. Episode... Who the hell knows? I really don't know what episode it is. I wanted to talk about a subject that people ask me about a lot, and it's kind of an awkward subject to talk about, because I don't think we as a nation really like to admit this particular subject's role in all of our lives, and yet it does play a role. And I'd like to talk about alcohol as it relates to transitioning. If you follow me on Twitter, if you know me in real life, you know that the, that this subject is one that is of pretty great annoyance to me. Uh, because of the hormones that I take as part of my transition, I'm pretty much limited to... I guess the suggested amount is no more than one drink a night. Or a couple a week, which is pretty much the way that I do it. Uh, I usually pretty much drink one night a week now, as opposed to being a pretty big fan of alcohol. And it's so weird to talk about that in that kind of way, because if you just go up to somebody or a friend and you say, you know, do you like alcohol? Not even like, do you like whiskey or do you like vodka or do you like beer or for loco, if that's your poison literally for like was the worst i could go on and on about college stories about when for Loco first came out before it's it's neutered self now if that's the right word probably not but we don't really like to admit that alcohol not only plays a role in our life but more importantly it plays a role in our social lives and it's something that i've struggled with in with regard to transitioning Probably more than a hell of a lot of the other areas, with the one exception probably just being straight-up discrimination. Uh, as you can probably imagine, when people treat me different as a result of my gender identity, not a big fan, but that's a subject for another podcast if I... Yeah, it's just, it's, that's not fun. And, and talking about the sort of more complainy aspects of transitioning is really also not something that I love to do, and... I, I don't want this video to be framed as that, even though if you're somebody... I mean, this is the huge problem. If I were to talk about all of the ways, all of the negative ways that transitioning has impacted my life, a lot of it could really be construed as whining. And if you're somebody listening, saying to themselves, oh, boo-hoo, Ian can't drink a lot of alcohol anymore, that could also be lumped into the category of whining, but... For me, it's it's not really about that. The reason I decided to do a podcast on this particular subject is, in the abstract, transitioning was a journey to sort of normalize my life to not have to live with a part of me in the closet or just the, all the internal dilemma that went into living a life where I couldn't be I, I hate the phrase you know you're living your authentic self because it's it's not like something that belongs on a greeting card versus you know everyday actual uh, reality but it's true it's a true statement as it relates to alcohol though I like bars I love making fun of that line in the Brett Kavanaugh Supreme Court. You know, I like beer. It's just an easily mockable thing to say, but I like going to bars. They're fun. I lived alone for close to four years before my partner moved in, so there were a lot of days where I would meet people at bars, or if there weren't any buddy to go to a bar with, I'd go alone and bring something to write. Literally, I would do that. It's always the cliche of the uh, author who goes to the bar and writes, but that's literally what I did. I would, and I, I would have great pleasure in that. I've never minded going out to eat alone or going to a bar alone because you meet people, and there's just this sort of romanticization of the sort of culture of your friendly neighborhood watering hole, the kind of stuff that Cheers is remembered for, a place where everybody knows your name and they're always happy you came. They're always glad you came. A place where everybody knows your name and they're always glad you came. I had that at a lot of bars. And now I don't really have that. I have it in a more muted sense. Like, there's plenty of local bars that Tara and I go to on a semi-regular basis, but 
You can't really develop those kind of rapports if you go and you basically have one or two drinks and you leave. You can't build that kind of camaraderie unless you get pissed drunk and say something stupid or put something terrible on the jukebox. And I really, in the two plus years I've been on hormones, I have not really been drunk. There have been a couple days where I felt very buzzed. I, I probably would meet somebody else's standards for being drunk, but... In college, I lived in a water polo house with 17 to 19, depending on the current occupancy, but a lot of other people, and there were a lot of parties, and I drank a lot. It sounds ridiculous to say there would be a night where I probably had, like, 17 or even more beers. And yet that happened, or the cups of beers, where a lot of it's probably foam from a keg, so... I, I don't I don't say the alcohol content from a bragging perspective, but just the sheer volume that could be consumed. And that doesn't really happen anymore. And I want to be clear that my particular relation to my ability to consume alcohol reflects my own individual transition and my own course of hormone therapy. Plenty of other trans women follow completely different forms of HRT, independent of mine. And I guess the one kicker would be uh, the reason that I can't really consume as much alcohol is because of the estradiol, and that is a kind of a common hormone across the board. The differences tend to differ when it comes to T-blockers. Like, I'm on a substance called detasteride until I have my bottom surgery, then I won't need it. But then there's also progesterone, which is meant to simulate a menstrual cycle. It's immensely uncomfortable at some points. I guess that could also play a role in how my body processes alcohol, but I've talked to people in the community who even mentioned the subject, like, yeah, I can't even drink at all. So the whole one, one two drink thing, it differs. I There are plenty of trans people I know who drink a hell of a lot more than I do, and... That's between them and their doctor. I have no idea. I, I'm only just following what my own doctor has recommended for me. A recommendation that I've had, fortunately or unfortunately, depending on how you want to look at it, uh, got a lot of real-world experience. My limit on alcohol that I can consume in really a 24-hour span without throwing up is really between three and four drinks. And I put an emphasis on the 24-hour span because one time when I was in New Orleans, I literally had four drinks over the course of a 12-hour period, as in I never really got drunk because I had all of those drinks so far apart from each other, and yet I still ended up yakking in the middle of the night. And that's happened a lot. I'm not typically one to throw up from alcohol. I never have been. I made it all through high school with no yakking, and the only the first time that I did in college, I had heartburn. It was a water polo uh, thirsty Thursday, and I had heartburn all day. Even complained about it, so it wasn't like people were like, "Oh, you're lightweight." Everybody knew that I had been whining about needing Pepto Bismol or something, which I think I got later that day. But uh, I don't. I, I don't really throw up. I threw up a couple times in college, probably no more than three times a year, with the one exception being Australia, where. I often consumed this really terrible boxed wine that they call goon as a generic term, but there's a lot of different brands. That would make me throw up sometimes. But apart from that, apart from not being on the North American continent, I would rarely throw up. And now, I actually, I made it until May of 2019 without throwing up. And then too stiff, I don't even, too... And then two gin drinks and two PBRs left let me uh, left me to spend the night hurling up. Not very pleasant, but that's my reality now. And I guess I did this episode to try and unpack that because people always ask me, "What is transitioning like?" And it's hard to say because the reality is my life is not very dissimilar from if you're a cisgender person it's probably not that much different from your life we're probably you know i get out of bed 
I eat breakfast. I work out. I do my work. I have my fun time. Oh, it sounds very mundane stuff. And yet, you know, the media or uh, all those right-wing activists just portray us as a bunch of sex-trained loon. Now, life is fairly mundane, fairly boring. But there are these instances, these life experiences where things are different. And when it comes to alcohol, it's a frustration because... You know, to think about to think about something like sports participation when it w- with regard to transgender athletes. It's a story that even for people like me who are athletes but are not currently competing, I played water polo through college. The idea that that people like me could be banned from participating who want to participate just because of who we are. It gets at you because you don't transition to have, you know, to trade some closed doors off for others. You transition to have all the doors open and to have a life that is free from their restrictions. That, I I guess from just being in the closet, I mean, some of them, you never know how many of the pre-transition restrictions are sort of ones that you place upon yourself or just accurate reflections of reality. I don't kid... The question of, you know, should you tra- have transitioned earlier pops up for, pretty naturally, for a lot of trans people. I think about that myself. And it's tough to think about it, because you can Monday morning quarterback those kinds of things in all sorts of different ways. But I, I, I always just try to remind myself not to beat myself up too much, because I was born in the early 90s. I'd be kidding myself if I tried to pretend that the world was some sort of different place. I still transitioned in my early-ish 20s. I don't know, I feel old now. But I like the idea that I can still do anything. That there, there aren't things out there that I'm limited by as a result of my gender identity or my age. If you follow my Instagram, you know that I'm at Disneyland quite often. When Tara and I go, we tend to spend we tend to spend upwards of twelve to fourteen hours there every time. Having gone nineteen times this year, we still go on that amount of time, and it's tiring. But it feels actually pretty good at the end of the day to realize that you could walk around on your feet for that length of time, even if you're spending it at the happiest day on earth. But it, it's exciting and transitioning from uh, male sex hormones to female sex hormones means there is kind of a natural loss of energy. I have less energy running around on estradiol than I do than I would have testosterone. So it makes me feel good when I'm able to just kind of go for that amount of time and feel good and feel okay in the process, even as somebody, you know, close. I, I will be 30 in not that long, a couple of years. And it's weird to think about. But I don't like having these kinds of limits placed on me because transitioning isn't supposed to be about limits. It's supposed to be about liberation, not restriction. And we're talking about alcohol, so let's let's just keep that in perspective. It's not something... I remember the day my endocrinologist first told me that my alcohol intake would need to be curtailed almost entirely. I didn't really care. I still don't really care that much. And I mean that. And you could say, well, she's making a podcast about it. Obviously, she does care. I care about it in certain ways. And that's the reason why I want to talk about it. But he told me that I would basically not be able to drink more than one drink a day for a while. And I actually, for probably the first six months of transition, I had... Less than 10 drinks total. I basically quit drinking entirely just to let the hormones do their thing unimpeded. Because the real the real issue with drinking alcohol with horm- with uh, HRT is the fact that for me, I take my estradiol orally. I take it in I take it in pill form. There are other ways that I could take it. I could um I could inject it through my uh 
buttocks, I could get a nice big needle full of estrogen injected into my tush where I could do that or I could have somebody else do that. That That's an option. Or I could have this sort of little mini Pez dispenser injected just underneath my skin and that would distribute estrogen on some sort of timed basis. I, I didn't really... Some people like that strategy a lot. It sounds kind of weird, and I know I didn't do a great job explaining it, but I heard that, and I just said to myself, you know what, even as a little kid, you know, when you had all of those uh, childhood medicines, and they were the grape flavor or bubble gum, but they all tasted like pure shit. Basically, as soon as I was able to articulate words, I was demanding the pure just you know swallow pill you know that some kids are afraid of the big pill as soon as i could get off that kitty gripe stuff i didn't care and i didn't mind that but when it came to taking my hrt i i don't really love needles i certainly don't want to inject them into myself into my ass with that although my butt looks pretty good now I didn't want to do that one, and the Pez dispenser I thought was also pretty terrible. So I went with the pills. As a result, my liver breaks down the estrogen that is taken normally. I don't really know if the liver would do it for an injectable or the Pez dispenser, but I was told it would be a little different. And that's another important point to make clear. I chose the route that put me in this position. It wasn't really a choice. When you talk about... When I tell people, oh, I can't really drink anymore because of HRT. They say, well, you know, everything's a trade-off. Then that's true in a lot of ways. I often think about... Um, for those of you who don't know me very well, I am quite a bit of a stoner. I smoke a lot of weed. I am not very apologetic about that, or I'm not very uh, quiet about that. I like weed. It's fun. It makes me feel good. If I'd been told I couldn't smoke weed anymore if I was on HRT, I would still, I would still transition. But, oh, I would be salty about it. I'm not that salty about alcohol. I really am okay with the fact that there's only so much my liver can take. And I can't have much alcohol because if I do, it's not going to process my estradiol right. And then this whole transition thing is uh, kind of wasted then. If you're just going to, if you're just going to overtax your liver with all of that stuff, you know, everything's a trade-off, but it's frustrating. It's frustrating that my liver cuts out after one or two drinks. I am quite literally a two-beer queer. That's a derogatory term that people, you know, if you start th if you get too drunk or you start getting sick after a couple of beers, they call you a one-beer queer, a two-beer queer, a three-beer queer. I've never heard four-beer queer. But I fit under that. I'm gay, and I can't really drink. Isn't that fun? It's not fun. It's annoying. It's annoying to have friends you used to go out to bars with. Ask you if you go out to bars. You go out, and then you're just sipping on a whiskey soda. Or, I was about to say a glass of red wine, which would be kind of the ideal sort of sipping drink, because you can just kind of hold it and take little baby sips for a while. But I, I have had less than five glasses of wine probably in the past two years that... There are a lot of people who just experience wine hangover or wine drunk very differently from others. I know a lot of people who feel kind of the same way about gin, and I don't. I like gin a lot. But I don't really drink wine. But when I go out, I have this drink that I just kind of hold. Sometimes it's beer, but warm beer tastes gross. And a watered-down bourbon and soda, just not the greatest thing in the world, but also not the worst thing in the world. But you go out, and people say to you, you know, come come out for a night drinking. They get kind of annoyed when you're just sitting there essentially being 
closer to the designated driver than an active participant. And of course, I don't drink and drive, but it's just people look weird at you when you're not drinking. Like there's something wrong with you. Especially if you're at a bar and you want to drink. That's a social function that I am very limited from participating in. And it bothers me. Not because I, I, I really... I used to be a huge fan of the nightcap. Mostly because I'm a scotch, with, a scotch and a single malt drinker. So I like things that people just go blah, blah, blah. Very bittery things with only like a little morsel of water to open it up. I love nightcaps. Nightcaps are great. I almost never have a nightcap anymore. But there's just something beautiful, especially in the days before streaming TV really took over when there was a lot of good stuff on at 10 o'clock at night, which I guess there still is. But you get very spoiled on the East Coast being able to watch a lot of the HBO and the Showtime and the Star stuff at 6. Then by 10 o'clock rolling around, you just kind of want to be in bed, not watching live TV, but falling asleep to something on Hulu or Netflix or something. But before that, I would sit... 10 o'clock would roll around. I knew I'd be in bed at 11, sleeping. So I would pour myself a nightcap, and I would sit there, and I'd watch a show. And it was a very relaxing way to end the evening. It's something that people have done for hundreds of years. Not with TV, but just the thought of a nightcap. Maybe even thousands, or maybe even hundreds of thousands of years. People have loved that activity. It's a very fun activity. And I don't really do that anymore. Because alcohol, ah, hangovers. I actually, I used to get bad hangovers before I transitioned. I don't really know what a really, I've had maybe one really bad hangover since transitioning. And that's mostly because I I physically, I'll throw up if I have three drinks, but I won't actually feel hungover, which is a bizarre phenomenon if you're, if you're, if you drink a lot. Maybe that's something you haven't heard, because I certainly didn't in before I transitioned, but it's a weird feeling to wake up throwing up and otherwise feeling fine. Like, sometimes puking makes you feel better, but you, you, you were hungover at some point. The headache and all of that kind of stuff, it didn't happen. Kind of grateful for that, but... You know, if you're at a really bad hangover and or you've seen somebody who has a really bad hangover, it goes, I'm never drinking again. Of course they are. And there's a reason. It's because it's fun. Drinking alcohol at bars is fun. I like doing it. That's the other weird thing. You're out at a bar and nowadays and you have a drink. It's ha- Things are going well. You have another... Things are still going well, and you're getting a little tipsier, and maybe your inhibitions are going down a bit. And then you finish that one, and you really shouldn't have the third. Or by the time you have the third, regardless of uh, when you started, it's basically game over, versus before, three drinks was basically nothing. It's not nothing anymore. And I even say that as somebody, I kind of noticed uh, a year or two after college, I used to live near a couple of bars. I've always kind of lived near bars. So you go there and you realize that at 24, you can't drink as much as you could at 20. Uh, This is even age plus estrogen equals lightweight. And it's awkward. Because any good time you have out has an expiration date that's shorter then you're going to want it to be. And I, you could say that for a lot of different things, for a lot of different reasons, but for this, I know the specific reason, and it's annoying. It's like when you're a kid and you're at a friend's house for a play date or a birthday party or whatnot. Your mom comes, and all you want to do is say, five more minutes, five more minutes, five more minutes. I'm like that at the bar sometimes, where I think to myself, I want another drink, or... Surprise, surprise, two, two drinks isn't enough. Or maybe it not being enough isn't really the big issue, because the bigger issue would be, I don't want it to have to be enough. It's all about agency. Like the agency to finish a nicely made cocktail. 
I was in Pasadena last June for a conference called Gender Odyssey, which is a conference aimed at transgender and gender diverse people, and especially the families of gender diverse youth. Really, even in the modern times, not a ton of resources out there for parents if your child comes out as trans, so conferences like that are a great uh, networking opportunity for resources, because oftentimes you do have to travel quite a bit. Even in places like Southern California, which you would have heard if you listened to my conversation with Dr. Adrian Harrop on the state of transgender rights in the UK. But so anyway, I was in Pasadena, and I was out with my partner, my father, who came for the conference, a couple transgender friends we'd met there, and then also because I was going to a music festival the next day, my college roommate was also there. It was a bit of a motley crew. But we had a lot of drinks. We had a lot of drinks at two different bars, second of which we had dinner at. And I had definitely not just had three. I'd probably had four or five, but the final drink I had ordered was an old-fashioned, a favorite drink of mine. But it was one of those old-fashions that was made with not a ton of soda or not a ton of ice, club soda being the ingredient. It's not an old-fashioned if you were to use Coke or something, but... So I have an old-fashioned that doesn't have a ton of mixer in it. And I knew I noticed it was strong, which is good because it was probably, this would have been 9, 9.30, not happy hour time. So it was actually, under normal circumstances, I would probably be very grateful that I got this drink that was actually like a pretty stiff drink. But... Having that be my fifth of the sixth drink of the day, I was having trouble finishing it, which is uh, frustrating for a lot of reasons, but I, I, in college, when we would have parties, I'd always, in the morning, the most depressing thing would be to go around with the trash can and see all the empty, or the half-filled cups, or the half-filled beers, even if they're cheap or whatnot. It's kind of a bummer to see something, uh, a beer can that somebody had clearly opened, decided they had to go somewhere, or they'd had enough, and they took two sips of it, and they set it down. So I'm not a person who likes to just take a drink and say, oh, I'll leave this for, you know, to be dumped down the sink. That's a notion that I don't like. So there I was, chugging away, not chugging away, sipping away, little baby sips on this drink, and I knew we were getting to the point where we would probably be leaving. So I started to drink a little faster. And then eventually there was probably... I just made a sign with my fingers to show how much it was. But this is a podcast, not an audio thing. Or not a video thing. So it would have been... I don't know, maybe a third of an inch full. Not a lot. Let's say if you were drinking like a drink... Four or five sips left that I just kind of said, down the hatch. And I did that. And then I waited for a second. Not terribly drunk. We had been there for a while, and I sipped my drinks. I didn't, uh... So, you know, you say, you say you had five or six drinks in a night, and then somebody's like, oh, well, that must have been a lot. Over the course of, like, five hours, though, that's basically nothing. And that's pretty much where I was at, but my stomach said to myself, uh-oh... Something's not right here. And I got up and I said, I'll be right back. Went to the woman's room. Leaned into the toilet, which thankfully was pretty clean, even though it was a bar. And had myself a nice little yak. Went, bleh, And then that drink, which I had, you know, previously wanted to finish for the sake of not wasting it. Stayed down for about 45 seconds. And then it was gone. Up right back where it started from. Into the toilet. Ashes to ashes. Dust to dust. Toilet water to ocean. And I wasn't even drunk. Not terribly. I came out. I was like, I threw up. And it was a case of, oh, let's get Ian home. But really it was a case of... Ian's fine, this is just something that's 
sadly not out of the ordinary. Here I am repeating it. Because it's annoying. I, uh, at, the, at last year's Con of Thrones in Dallas, I had stuck to beer for the final night, but I'd probably had about seven or eight. Listen to me whine about the two to three drink limit and then constantly go beyond it and then look at what happens the morning after and wonder why. This is all my fault. All of this is my fault. If you think it's whining, it probably is, but people like hearing what it's like to be trans. And these are the parts that are kind of tedious that we talk about because that's our only way of communicating our experience to other people. And in communicating it, we sound whiny and annoying. Or I sound whiny. And in communicating it, I sound like I'm whining. But I'm not. Because how would you like it if you're not even hungover and you're just going blah, blah, blah? If, if, if you have to throw up because of drinking, it should be because you had a fucking great time. Not because you stuck to beer and basically also averaged one an hour. And just had to throw up because your liver was just like, I've had enough. I want to have hangovers that fit the crime. So I, I stick to beer. I think the last couple of beers I hadn't even paid for, which is probably why we got in this mess. So let's not blame me. Let's blame other people. But so I wake up the next morning. It's a Sunday morning, and I have an early panel on the Blackfire Rebellion. And I... Realize, I get out of bed, I have maybe a sip or two of water, and I say to myself, uh-oh. And then I quoted Stannis, go do your duty. Duty for me would just be yakking up uh, seven beers. And I throw up, and I felt fine. I get to the panel, I'm the first one, uh, first presenter there, sitting at the table, chatting with the audience, and some people were like, oh, I'm so hungover, I'm so awful, and somebody finally said, how'd you, how are you feeling, Ian? And I said, oh, I threw up a little while ago. They were like, oh, you poor thing. And I kind of smiled, because I wasn't really sure if that was fitting, or if I had brought all of this down upon myself, which I guess is probably true anytime you drink a ton. Anytime you're really throwing up and you don't, you're not sick, or you didn't get food poisoning, or something like that. And I guess while we're on the subject of drinking stories, the last, like, really, really ridiculous one that I had was... Uh, so I, I pride myself in my bartending abilities. And one of my favorite drinks to make is a Manhattan. Because if you order a Manhattan when you're out, they're usually served straight up. And because you're at a bar, it's smaller than normal. And one of the beauties of being able to make drinks at home is you get to drink, make drinks that match your ambitions. You get to make as much as you want. So I made Tara and I a, I made Tara and me, I made me, I don't know who the hell knows, grammar, you get the idea. It drinks for two were made. And a Manhattan is made with bourbon or rye, I tend to use bourbon, although I do love rye. I actually probably like rye old fashions better than rye Manhattans and like bourbon I like bourbon old fashions too, though. Uh, I guess I tend to use that more for Manhattans, but it's it's bourbon, sweet vermouth, and bitters. So a pretty alcoholic drink. No, uh, no juice, no soda water, nothing to cushion the blow. And I've learned that despite liking to drink scotch straight or with a teensy bit of water or a single ice cube or something... I digest it better, and I end up kind of enjoying it more with soda nowadays just because I'm a lightweight now. And it makes it go down easier. At least I can admit it. I mean, who's really supposed to care about the whole pride thing? It's not about pride. It's about freedom to drink it without the little training wheels of the soda water. I mean, that's not really true. Although sometimes it feels that way. Anyway, back to the Manhattan. I really like making that because it's stiff and 
Oftentimes, I just even serve it on the rocks, too, just because I like doing that. You don't have to serve it straight up if you don't want to, but that's one of my favorite to drink, and I made them for Tara and myself. And I guess it was improbably in thinking, it's probably I consume the amount of a double, but I wake up in the middle of the night, climb out, and just blah, blah. More of that. Whoopee. Isn't that lovely? Off, uh, like, basically the equivalent of a double. Which wasn't even just pure alcohol either, because I was drinking it with ice, so it would have melted. Basically, a Manhattan and, uh, ice water. <laughs> sure. That was what caused all of that. Just sitting on my couch watching a show, having a drink. Can't even do that. I have not touched a Manhattan since, and it makes me sad. When I'm home on the East Coast, my dad likes to honor the tradition of happy hour, which is fun because if you watch old shows like Upstairs, Downstairs, or even Faulty Towers, even though it's a comedy... And I guess to a lesser extent, Downton Abbey, which doesn't have a ton of happy hour scenes, but there's a couple. Happy hour is fun. Not even, like, going out for happy hour is obviously also fun, but... Or Gilmore Girls, when they have the little drink cart. It's cute. It's fun. My dad says... Do you want to have happy hour? Obviously, that's fun. It's fun to have a drink before dinner. Something I still like to do even though you now have to kind of look at that differently. So you go out, you have a, in the old days when I would go home, you could have a happy hour drink, have a drink with dinner, and then maybe go out, have another drink if you're out, come home, have a nightcap. I don't know, not not to sound like somebody who just goes home and gets plowed, but Getting plowed is off the table. And it makes you rethink whether you want to have the happy hour, the drink at happy hour, if it's just going to make you feel sleepy and extra tired and fall asleep at like nine, which does happen to me nowadays. And I often wonder if that's because I'm old. It's certainly not because I drink, because nowadays I'll be, it'll be like 930 and I'll be falling asleep on the couch and Tara will give me a kick and say, you know, if you don't stay up for another half hour, you're going to be up at the crack of dawn. And I guess some of that's probably just adjusting to hormones or any number of things. But happy hour is a thing I got to think about now. Honestly, just especially if it's like, if sunset is just coming and it's five o'clock and you've got a drink and you're out on a patio or somewhere outside... Very great way to say sayonara to a day, especially if you've been working hard. It's pretty, it's pretty lovely. That's the kind of thing I would want to romanticize because it should be romanticized. It's fun. Happy hour is very fun. And now happy hour is basically, if, if I want to do happy hour, it's the only hour. Maybe one more at dinner. To ensure that somebody is destined for early sleep slips. And all of that, all of that flies in the face of one, of one of the great beauties of alcohol, which is the ability to just let loose. I can't do that because I gotta monitor it. I have to monitor it so I don't go yuck yuck in the middle of the night. I guess all people need to moderate it, but, um, the self-control thing is supposed to only kick in after, you know, five or six, not just the one. Ugh, yuck. There are also plenty of times where it would be great to not have any self-control with regard to alcohol. Cocktail parties, for example, especially ones with open bars, are insufferable enough as they are, generally speaking. I don't know if people actually like cocktail parties or strictly like getting drunk at cocktail parties, but 
I've never left a cocktail party thinking to myself, boy, what great conversation. I usually leave a cocktail party feeling like I can't even make a sentence straight because my words are slurred. Honestly, academic cocktail parties are the worst because you have this bottom shelf wine that you have to drink very quickly, the first couple, so you don't notice the taste, or the beer is warm. You have warm beer or a shitty, not even like bottom shelf Trader Joe's wine, like bottom shelf liquor store wine, and they'd be better off buying the, the bottom shelf Trader Joe's wine. But these things have to inflict the most suffering possible, so that's the way it goes. And you go to those cocktail parties, and what do you want to do? You want to get wasted, because there's nothing else interesting to do. And you have to drink enough so that things become interesting. How do you do that on HRT? I don't know. You almost just got to kind of bite the bullet. But I worry because throwing up is not good for you. Especially, uh, especially when it just won't end and you're sort of like, you got nothing left in the tank. And I don't want to describe it much more than that because it's yucky, but it's not good. Even if the situation calls for you to just, you know, decide to say, okay, I might be hurt in the morning, but I'll go through with this and drink enough to survive a boring as shit cocktail party. There's the other part of you that says, okay, well, the outcome of that will not be good, and you shouldn't really... There's no... I worry about because of the acidity and your teeth and all of that. It's not something you want to plan for. If it happens, you know, because you... Got a little inebriated and just, uh, you know, nature took its course. That's one thing, I guess. But it's not ideal. Let alone, I mean, between cocktail parties, dating, early dating. I don't even call what I, you know, I, I live with my partner. So I don't really call it dating what we do, even though I guess it is. It's more of like the. Boring old couple live together. And I say boring in like a positive sense. I don't want long 2 a.m. nights. But, you know, actually, I'll say this about that. We were at a concert at, in Huntington Beach this past week. And I didn't get wasted. But we did get, we did get Del Taco on the car ride back. Nice and stonied, and I had uh, way too much food. Got back, and it was like 2 a.m. That You know, that that's actually living life on the town. That's an anomaly, though. We don't do that very often. And I'm okay with that. I'm getting older. I see older people at the bars. And that's kind of another frustration with uh, being out and not being able to just get Wasted. Like, I was uh, at the bar, and this old guy who had been hitting on me offered to buy me a drink, but I'd had three drinks already, and not only did I not want to feel obligated to talk to him, I also was, like, literally just kind of in the position of this drink would be a bad idea anyway, so I p politely turned him down, asked if he had Baja Blast Mountain Dew, which is only served at Taco Bell, which is kind of ironic because I went to Del Taco later that night. It's not ironic, actually, when you're stoned and when you've been drinking and when somebody says, go through the drive-thru, Taco Bell or Del Taco is really tier one. And then what's open is tier two. So usually you're looking at McDonald's or Carl's Jr. I don't really eat Jack in the Box or Burger King. These are just West Coast chains, by the way. But so that's where I'm at. That is my life. And I guess we see transitioning as sort of an opening of doors, not a hodor holding of doors or closing doors. Hodor, hodor. We're supposed to be opening opportunities. 
And I feel like my social life, I feel like I'm kind of living in the epilogue of that. You could say, quit being a baby, it's just booze. Sure. Tell that to society, though. The, the broader question of all of that. It's not just on me to say, okay, I can plot a different course. You got to find people who are then going to play ball with you on that very topic. And uh, there are plenty of people. I mean, God bless the people who have regular Dungeons and Dragons games. That's like a built-in activity that you can actually rally people around who know what they're doing. But you got like that. And I mean, plenty of them drink, but that's not really a you-have-to-drink kind of environment. But there's that. I don't play Dungeons and Dragons. Not, not, not from a total lack of desire, but it's a learning curve on that. I like to play board games, but board games are also kind of fun if you've been drinking. Or uh, Mario Party on N64. Basically, any game on N64. It's one of the great multiplayer game consoles of all time. But probably the greatest. We have an episode that we're going to do of SRI Illusions about the N64. Probably soon, once that gets scheduled and all of that. But Mario Party without alcohol is... Fun still, I guess, but uh, I'm playing the booze version since, like, uh, college. And it's kind of fun to go back and sort of uh, relive those days. People always say, well, that was before you transitioned, right? You're allowed to have happy memories of the life you lived before. I have plenty of happy memories from the life before. That doesn't mean that this decision was wrong. Decision was right. Largely in part because my gender dysphoria was preventing me from making a lot of new happy memories because I was miserable deep down inside. And that's sweet to talk about. But it's good to talk about now because I can acknowledge it. And if you're somebody who is just starting your transition or you're transitioning also, you probably know how I feel. Life is complex. It's a series of contradictions. Its greatest consistency is inconsistency. You can put that on a Hallmark card, but uh, it's not terribly wise either. It's just kind of something that is. And you, it's it's not really just the transgender people who sort of look at their social calendars and say, "Where do I make great improvements?" It's like every every single like new show that's kind of like a sad com in L.A. About Millennials is about this. You've got your, your shows like Broad City where you got the two friends, Abby and Alana, who are just basically just have each other. And you got other people who are just kind of lonely and don't even have any friends at all. And that's a problem that tons of people face. And the solutions to those kind of problems often involve just kind of gathering a bunch of people who are similarly malcontent with life and sit them into a bar, give them some alcohol, and then for about three hours they forget about it and then hopefully they go home and stop caring about that particular issue until it's time in a few weeks or six months down the road to go there and do that all again. Isn't that fun? And alcohol plays its role in all of that. It's kind of a sad commentary on where we are as a society, but... I guess from my perspective, I would kind of wish that I more mainstreamly fit into the solutions for that particular dilemma. If I could cure millennial loneliness on a personal level by spending more time sitting at a bar stool. Actually, you know, there's bar there's a bar down the street from my apartment where people just basically go and do that. And Tara and I go there oftentimes and you nod and you exchange minor pleasantries with the people who work there, the people who basically live there. But I'm not going to have a relationship with any of those people because those people stay there for hours and they get shitty together. And I have my beer, I have my dinner, and I get up and I go home. And I can sit there with a glass of water, but they're not going to trust me. And I'm not even, I'm not, using that example in such a literal fashion implies that I just kind of lament that I can't go to the watering hole and make a friend. And yet, I sort of can't. 
And I knew this episode would eventually reveal itself as not really a commentary on alcohol, but rather the quest to solve happiness in millennials. Something that I, I have no idea what the answers are. Like many of you, I have my things that bring me joy. Reading. Playing old video games. Walking down to the pier. Getting a delicious glazed donut from this place around the block. It's called Colonial Bakery if you're ever in Long Beach. You should go there. They're delicious. They really are some of the best donuts I've ever had. And I smile when I bite into one. I smile as a person who knew years and years of unhappiness. And I, I don't... I guess there's a part of me that's sort of like most people my age is kind of... Maybe not down or depressed or... I guess both of those things, we just with regard to the future and all of that. It's hard not to be in this day and age. But uh, life's generally pretty good. And yet when I think about, like, you know, like, like many people, it would be better to have a more fulfilling... I, you know, that's always kind of the big uh, catch-22. Do you want a bigger social life or do you... Or are you secretly unaware that you're very happy with the current one? The plight of the introvert versus the extrovert. The extroverted side makes the plans, and then the introvert spends the next five days praying that something will come along that will cancel it. I think a lot of us can relate to that kind of notion. And I found my transition fulfilling. Gender dysphoria was something I lived with for decades and it went untreated and I know there's all these people who want to downplay the, the quote unquote medicalization of transitioning which is good because there's plenty of people who fit into the gender, the transgender umbrella or identify as gender diverse or non-binary or all of these people who fit into our community who don't need to go on hormones or don't need to have surgery um who find there are plenty of their own ways to be happy and still very much fit under what it means to be transgender. So I'm I'm only speaking about the sort of the gender dysphoria diagnosis thing from my own personal standpoint, but just as somebody who had that particular affliction and had to work through it with people. And I'm still working through it. It's still very much uh, an active process. But to live life kind of after all of that, you know, you spend all those years in the closet scared shitless, wondering how the world's going to be when you come out. And it's the scariest thing in the world. And part of how it's allowed to be the scariest thing in the world is because you get to set the terms for the, you know, you can set the grimmest, darkest scenario and roll with that. That can be, you can be your own, you are, people are their own worst enemy in the closet. Which isn't to say there aren't a lot of, a uh, hell of a lot of reasons why staying in the closet is often a hell of a lot better than the alternative. I mean, there is a lot of real world discrimination that you got there and face. There are reasons people are afraid to come out. There are reasons to be afraid to come out. Very valid reasons. But when you reach that sort of breaking point, the steam hits the valve and you realize, hey, I don't know if this is the right way, but it's looking like the only way now. When you hit that point, you go through it, you work through it. I mean, I got 99 problems, but gender dysphoria is not one of them. I don't wake up confused about who I am anymore. And it's kind of refreshing because in that regard, I'm no different from a cisgender millennial in the sense that many of my problems could be found in plenty of other people. 
which I guess is also only kind of helpful from a Misery Loves Company standpoint. And Misery Loves Company is not to say, like, you should just drag uh, other people down to your depth, but, uh, all the, you know, the tide rises everybody. Everybody rises with the tide. Did I screw up that metaphor? I don't. I don't really know. In order to kind of get to that point, you have to find Kamebans, and that's been kind of the great beauty of the internet for a lot of people in the sense that, uh, you know, whether it's something like Game of Thrones or even something more obscure, like Terry Pratchett's Discworld, which isn't itself obscure, but another fandom example. If you're if you're somebody who doesn't engage with books, that would be, or somebody who doesn't engage with books or live in England, Discworld would be fairly obscure. Dragon Riders of Pern, something like that, or a fandom dedicated to the Sega CD, or people who really still fan, uh, stand the original Battlestar Galactica. Those are things where it'd be hard to find friends in real life who kind of identify with that, all of that kind of stuff for the nuances or can engage with it on the level that you would be able to if you're a hardcore fan. But for me... It's nice to have the internet where you those people are a bit more readily available. And then, of course, you know, that's just on an online spiel or sphere. It's nice to uh, think with regard to community that you have all the options open for you. And people find community at bars. Cheers. You want to go where everybody knows your name. And they're always, I don't know, do I have to pay? No, I don't have to pay any royalties for singing that. Uh, it's the question we all wonder, how to be happy. And none of us want to answer, well, I guess maybe some people would want to answer, you can find happiness at the bottom of a nice stiff drink. It's a great way to end a Friday. Or any other day. Not every other day. And I enjoy my cocktails. I enjoy going out. In that regard, my life is not seriously impeded. In that regard, or any regard by my inability to get wasted anymore. If you're not as, uh, if you're not really all that involved with transgender issues or LGBT issues, and you listen to this podcast for Game of Thrones, you're probably like, what the hell was Ian doing making an episode whining about? Oh no, she can only have two drinks. What a tragedy. A little bit of vom vom. Call it first world problems. That's fine. But a lot of transgender people are in the same boat as me. And if you aren't, and if these problems don't plague you, drink one for me. Enjoy yourself. I think it's important to talk about these things because... Society at large often gets a lot of the transgender experience wrong. Or they know so little about our lives that they project their worst nightmares onto us. They think we go to bed at night hoping to prey upon some innocent lesbian. I guess we could talk about that, that particular subject at a different time, but... It annoys me to no end the people who think that uh, the people who think that trans women who are attracted to women are some kind of you know monsters who need to f- quote unquote force people to have sex with them. The quote unquote cotton ceiling, as it's been written about, which is ridiculous. As a transgender woman who goes out, who has gone out, walked down the street. Existed in society. Uh, plenty of people out there desire us. Of course, turfs are probably not listening to this particular broadcast, but 
There's all these misconceptions out there, all this stuff that people get wrong. So when it comes to topics like this, maybe bring out the more uh, minimum, the smaller scale issues that plague our community. This doesn't rank very high on the scale, but it's not unimportant to talk about because it's a part of my experience that I, I refuse to say it affects my quality of life. It doesn't. In fact, it improves my quality of life because as a result, I drink less. I sleep better. I'm probably a happier person. But it annoys me. And if there was ever a, a great reason to record a podcast about something, it would be about it annoying you. For all of the, I guess I've had a couple, I was about to say, to all the mojitos I've left behind. Mojitos are delicious. I guess maybe the one benefit, uh, when I go out, knowing that I'm only going to have one versus two or three, I tend to order a nicer drink or a tastier drink. And I get my share. But Tara and I went to Las Vegas and we drank... I think we averaged two drinks a night each. And if you're going to go to Vegas and that's all you're going to drink, I mean, God, there you, there's there's someone out there saying you're doing it wrong. On the flip side, I want a lot of money in Vegas. Probably because I knew when to quit the blackjack table. So everything in life is a trade-off. I, tra- I chose to transition... Acknowledging the shitty card that I was dealt. Having been born with a gender identity that did not correspond to the sex that was designated to me upon my birth. That was a hand that I wish I hadn't been dealt. That's not to say I'm not proud of who I am, but you get the idea. Sometimes you see people who argue, oh... Saying you were born, you wish you were born cisgender is a sign that you regret transitioning. Obviously not. Obviously not. What it does mean, however, is that I would love to not have to take hormones for the rest of my life. And I would certainly love to just go sit down at the bar, not knowing when the hell I was going to be ready to leave. Because now I can basically tell you it's like 45 minutes to an hour. I want to meet someone interesting and talk to them about rambling nonsense until neither one of us can remember what the hell we were saying. I don't know when that will happen. I know I would have a hell of a lot more fun with the fuckboys who try to hit on me, even though I show no interest and I'm in a relationship anyway. That doesn't stop them ever. But if I could say yes to their drink and consume it before walking away, I'd, I'd enjoy that a hell of a lot more. And you know what? Maybe next time I'll do that anyway. I'll say fuck it. Because this journey is supposed to be about not having limits. Opening up opportunities. And sometimes you just, just got to say fuck it all. Uh... There was a song from a Disney movie that I was going to start singing, but... Oh, it's from High School Musical, the one where I've got to go my own way. I've actually never watched High School Musical, but uh, my partner likes it. My sister used to watch it when when she was little. I wouldn't watch it with her because I thought it was stupid. But, um, yeah, I'm pretty much just rambling now. I've been rambling the whole podcast, but um, I hope you've enjoyed it because, or I hope maybe it uh, gave you a... uh, some light on uh, what it means to be trans. Or if you're a transgender person who is early in their transition or is maybe even still in the closet and you're looking for an account of how life goes, well, if this is what I'm making a podcast about being annoyed about, it's not so bad. And I say that, obviously, there are worse things I could make a podcast about, but wouldn't, because I can't laugh about them in the way that I can laugh about having done something like this.
And we should laugh about it. I'm going to laugh about it. I will tell people that this is a podcast full of whining. But it's one that's also gone on long enough, so... Feel free to leave a comment. Depending on where you're listening to this, you may be able to leave a comment on the actual page. A review for Apple. Comment on Podbean. One of the hard things on SoundCloud. I don't know. A nice tweet. I, whatever the hell you want to say what you thought about this episode. But I'd be interested to hear about it because... Uh, I'd obviously like to do a little more of these solo, more personal episodes in the future. And if they're helpful to people, that would be a great way to kind of figure out what I should do next. So anyway, I want to thank you so much for listening and we'll see you next time. <laughs>